0: Gray Zone.
1: Well, hello, hello. My name is Gray, and this is Gray Zone, a brand new interview podcast. Now, I know interview podcast ain't new, but it's new for me. At least in this format, I've been interviewing actors, writers, singers for most of my adult life. And now we're launching something brand new here. Welcome. Welcome. I got a really good interview set up for number one. Episode one, season one, decade one. Well, getting ahead of myself there. But, here's what I'm thinking. How do I begin? How do you jump in, you know what I'm saying? Well, I thought the best thing to do would be to come where I'm standing now. Valjean Avenue in Van Nuys, California. This is to the west of the 405, which to those of us in Hollywood and Los Angeles would say, this is the hinterland. This is, this is where dragons be. Um, it's, it's a, it feels a little far out from the movie studios, at least. It's about a 45 minute drive on a good day. But Valjean Avenue, for those who know something about movies and movie history and visual effects, Valjean Avenue is as good as Hollywood, at least in the uh, 70s. This is where movie history was made And we're gonna talk about what kind of history and how. And the subject of my interview, Dan Perry is a part of that history. He's a guy who creates movie titles. He's a guy who got into it because he loves graphics. He loves design. And then he likes putting text into motion, which is movie titles. And he took it to a new level. He made titles for many of the movies we grew up with, and one in particular blew your mind as a kid, and it blows your mind again. Stick around and we'll talk about it. Another thing about Valjean Avenue, years before all of these flat cinder block buildings that became shops for movies, as ordinary as they are, some amazing things happened inside of them, but even before that, Dan Perry grew up on Valjean Avenue and years later found himself directly across the street from the lot where he lived. That is an amazing coincidence when you think about the vastness that is Los Angeles. The thing for which he is most famous took place directly across the street from where he grew up as a kid. That's just one amazing story that Dan Perry will tell, coming up. All right, preliminaries, check. Details, check name check. So now, all that I have to do is figure out how to start. All right, I think I've got it. Here we go. My name is Gray, and this is Grayzone. Grayzone. What was he like to work with? Well, he was
0: always grumpy. I had this enormous task to figure out how to do it with this primitive film equipment.
1: You could have had half a point of Hell no. I, I want my money. You know, I, I, I didn't believe in it at all. Thanks for joining. For my interview with Dan Perry, I'm going to try something a little different. And that is I'm going to add music that is meant to remind you of images. Especially since this is about movie titles and movies. This next bit of music, though, will not require a lot of digging back in the memory. This is a moment that you will remember until the day you die. It is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil galactic empire. The first of three simple paragraphs epically rendered that towered over us in movie theaters. And as the Star Wars crawl pushes into the distance here in the studio, the creator of that sequence joins me to talk about its surprisingly small beginnings and his work on many, many more films. Dan Perry, thanks for joining me.
0: Thank you for having me, Graham.
1: Dan, you worked with, like I said, the A-list of directors, including George Lucas. Did he seem an A-list director to you back in 1975? Was it 76?
0: Uh, 76, yes. Um, well, no, he did not seem like an A-list director at that time. But you know, the the category, the reference was was new then anyway. Frank Marshall, one of the original producers, a good friend of mine, had taken it personally to every studio twice, and they all passed on it. And then finally, uh, when Alan Ladd Jr., who was at the time running Fox, decided to take a chance on it. So they set a small budget, and they went out to shoot it. And then as they started the effects, which were enormous, even by today's standards, uh, they set up a company, and they took a building out in Van Nuys in the Valley, The cinder block building that was ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, which had just been formed by Lucas in order to produce the effects for Star Wars. And as I went out there to meet with him, I realized that almost literally across the street on Valjean Street is where I lived as a kid. Wow. And the address was still on the curb, but... My house that I lived in wasn't there. It was some big cinder block building instead. Oh, that's amazing. Was so it? the
1: house may be gone, but the legacy remains. Is yes. it still there? Do you ever visit those old haunts?
0: Some of my other haunts? Yeah, homes? I mean is, yeah,
1: is, is, I do. The, is the building where they were doing these amazing effects? Is it yeah. still there?
0: Uh, yes. Yes it
1: is but you'd never know it from the outside no there's no signage the means. explosion of the death star and the, yeah, the amazing all battles all done this. in these nondescript cinder block and that's tin right. buildings down the street in north was, hollywood california <laughs> yes down
0: the street was uh, stan winston's which i think might still be there as well and it became kind of effects row many other effects companies set up there
1: is that that's also where they built bruce from jaws right i think not um, far from there
0: probably so I think Stan Winston might have done that as well
1: but it's all all that matters is what's on the screen it doesn't matter where it's made no. and that sort of brings us again to the crawl how did how did you make that now you can buy iMovie and they actually have a titling effect that copies the Star Wars crawl sure. yeah. which takes you all of a minute to create but that didn't it right. wasn't the case with well, you well originally
0: no at that time digital didn't even exist so everything was done on film So uh, I gleaned this idea of this perspective crawl going in space uh, being pulled by the logo was when I saw amongst many films that Lucas asked me to look at and then I chose a number of films to look at on my own looking for inspiration. So I saw a film from 1940 that Cecil B. DeMille directed called Union Pacific. Which was about the building of the American railroad, right? So the opening shot is lockdown camera looking down empty railroad tracks, and then a minute later, from under the camera, the titles start to roll down the track. Union Pacific, story, Joel, the and so on, and. I saw that, I visualized it in space. I I took that idea to him and showed him the sequence from Union Pacific and he said, great, go do it. So then I I had this enormous task to figure out how to do it with this primitive film equipment, uh, shooting a perspective crawl that had never been done before. I had this huge piece of artwork that with all these words <clears throat> that i had typeset that were on this piece of cardboard that was four feet wide by eight feet long, and I had to tilt it back in the space and film it, uh, and there were all kinds of technical problems with filming it. The lights would reflect off of the, the letters. Every word was cut out separately, and I moved them around and changed the spacing between the lines, between the words, and so on. And... Every time I shot it, I had to re-black the edges of the... because the lights were so hot that they'd curl up, and it was just an enormous pain in the neck. So the, and the letters mm. were just paper? Mm. Yeah, they were just uh, photostats of type that I pasted down to this black cardboard. The letters were white, and then you shoot it onto high-contrast 35 millimeter film, and then it's later superimposed on the color stock and whatever background you're shooting from, which was the star field, was uh, from an, a, another negative that you would superimpose the layer of the titles over that. At that point, you can filter in the color of the letters, and you have to c- uh, correct the color of the background, and that shot onto a new piece of film, and then developed and printed, in, and you have your...
1: Now, is that the way it was done at the time? That was the way it, it was, was going done. Going back the, to the, when? There was no other way to do it. Now, but you watch these movies from the forties and fifties. Were those all individual cards that were painted, each painted and lettered? Yes. So you were able to use what was the, I suppose, the cutting edge of the time. <clears throat> that was, it was still method. very time-consuming. Oh yes, and in the case of Star Wars, the
0: logo itself um, had been used, well, a version of it had been used in some promotional material that he put together when trying to sell the film to get financing, and it was. Uh, quite different than what we wound up with so I redesigned it Um, I retained the notion of there being the letters being outlined but the original design was so thin it would never hold up on film so I thickened it a lot and then I expanded it to fill the horizontal uh, aspect ratio of this widescreen frame that contained the film so uh, it had to be redesigned and then I shot it from these original elements that I created and created the, the zoom out of the logo from inside the, and behind the camera. And then all the different elements had to be tested. So many ways to find just the right combination. Uh, how fast would that zoom out? Before the crawl started to show up at the bottom of the screen. And how many words would... In a, in a, specific line of type. So all of that had to be tried, tested, changed, uh, recreated, and every time you shoot, shoot it, it's a new piece of film that has to be developed, and I have to bring it out to Van Nuys to show him and wait for hours. It, it was really quite complex. What was he
1: like to work with?
0: Well, he was always grumpy and <laughs> put upon and overwhelmed, and and uh, but he treated everybody that way. You know, that all day long... Every director gets this. People are waiting in line to ask questions so they yeah. can go do their work. So, so
1: in his defense, he had a lot on him because oh, yeah. nobody believed in this thing. No, It was mostly Lucas who believed in it. That's right. <clears throat> Even
0: his post-production supervisor, my friend Jimmy, who hired, brought me in to work on the film, had to prepare a new budget every week to get, go back to Fox and get another couple hundred thousand in order to finish the film. So every week they go and ask for more money from Fox and every week Fox would scratch their head and wonder why they're even doing this and they uh, threatened to pull the plug so many times but by that time they had so much invested that it would would have been better to finish the film. I remember one day I had to go out to Alan Ladd's office and describe the titles so they knew what to, to expect. At that time... I hadn't shot much on the, that I could shoot. you. You had to pitch before. the titles? Well not not to get his approval but just, just to explain. Yeah so it was just another element within the work that had to be done to finish the film.
1: But well, this happened at the end right? Oh yeah. Because usually titles do. They're the first thing you often see in a film or often the, last the afterthought mm-hmm. even though that's a completely wrong way to look at it. That's right. Uh, but that often happens and ideas get scaled down and Sometimes budgets
0: disappear and time disappears. All of a sudden, you only have two weeks instead of two months
1: because the energy has run out. Oh yeah, everyone's just Everybody, exhausted. They're, I mean, the momentum that this great idea had—that sure. everyone got on board. They cast it, they shoot it, they edit it. And then along oh. the way,
0: they're stealing money from the title budget or from the text yeah. budget or from the music budget in order to do something else. So it's all this—it's it's chaos. It's really chaos.
1: And. Right, and then they say, oh, uh, that's right, we have to have titles. Luckily, that didn't happen to you on Star Wars, or at least it doesn't show.
0: Well, they never changed the budget. Although at one point, uh, Jimmy Nelson came to me and said, George asked me to ask you if you'd be willing to take half a point on the film instead of your fee. And I literally said, fuck no. (laughs) You could have had half a point of Hell Star Wars. Hell no. I, I want my money. You know, I, I,
1: I didn't believe in it at all. But t- as it turns out... You could have had half a point is a half percent of the box. That's right.
0: A half percent of the 100% yeah, yeah. that the film makes at the box office. So Jimmy Nelson took a whole point because he was you know doing a lot more than I was on the film. And a couple of other people were given points, including Lucas's assistant, this lovely woman named Sue Tremley, who uh, took a half a point. And years later- Now I she owns
1: her. an island in the Pacific. <clears throat> I think so, because
0: she she made like a quarter of a million dollars up on it by that time, 20 years later. But it was only a week or so after that offer was made, and those who accepted it, except for Sue, because she was Lucas's assistant, they took them back. Oh, Because they'd had a screening for Fox, and everyone realized what they had. So the producers were not about to share this potential millions of dollars in profit. Can they do that? They could just take it back? Well, they never gave me anything in writing.
1: They never gave anybody? They were going to. Um, Whoever accepted, they were going to give them So there's a lesson, Dan. Have you been getting it all in writing since? Have you ever been offered points Yes, film in fact, sense. one of the reasons why
0: I turned it down was the year before I was working on this little stop action film called Flesh Gordon, <laughs> and they I got no money on that. I took points instead of money, which I remember that, that was playing at
1: the drive-in uh-huh. not far from my house. I didn't go; I was too young. But yeah. I remember. How do you forget that title?
0: I know. I was also given points and a fee on Days of Heaven. And every so often I get a report from Paramount who still claims that they're,
1: you know, in the red. They've never profited oh, on the film. Well, there's that, a whole other conversation so who yeah, on studio accounting. That's right. Now, just about that, it, because it is so iconic, the Star Wars logo itself, the first thing you see, bah, and then it sort of flies off, mm-hmm. that was also your work. Yes, you cleaned it up or what did you actually do I redesigned the initial- it I,
0: I expanded it I created the uh, the outline from the hairlines that were originally there and it was this kind of packed very vertical design to it um, but it did have the, the S's extended off of the T and off of the R so we have an example of it
1: here you're talking about these th- this particular black and white well that white. was an earlier design almost- of mine that okay. they used temporarily and then you it know. became this uh, yellowish right. outline. And
0: And there again, I tested all different colors. We did a bl- version in blue, and green, and white, and so on, and f- finally arrived
1: at yellow. Well, the blue was used elsewhere, right? It was used it's in the A long the old time religion. ago in a galaxy right. far, far away. That's right. You chose that font? Yes, of course. So that font is you, too, which has been used ever since in yeah. all the Star well, Wars it's, films. it's, it's an
0: existing font, but I chose oh, it. Oh, I know,
1: but I mean the selection and, yeah, of it for it, Star Wars. That's
0: right. I selected five or six of them. I shot them all and showed them to Lucas, and we settled on what I think is um, a Futura, one of the Futura fonts.
1: Right, and And the and the actual text of the crawl. Yeah, that too is if is that it's the same style, same font.
0: Yes, but it looks different because it's in yellow. Yeah. Then the other is in blue, so it shouldn't have a personality because it's meant to be read, not to be analyzed and impressed upon the reader that how beautiful these letters are it's meant to be read so it needs to be something that has minimal character and maximum readability
1: and it has been read and read and read and read that's right but all of that that entire the first thing you see the face of the film was your creation yes uh, you probably I mean, you probably sweated it sorry out, to say didn't but not uh-huh. you? you're sorry to say <laughs> well I don't know uh, it's, it's not your favorite it's, film, it's, it's is it? not, No,
0: it's not. And uh, I d- don't have the best of memories having worked on it. So it kind of colors how I remember it.
1: Yes, but to people like me, and you mentioned this to me, about how people, the stories they tell you about yes. Star Wars. Let's take a time out to talk about our sponsor this time for Grey Zone, and it's Dan Perry. We're offering Dan's brand new book, Dan Perry, Hollywood Titles Designer, A Life in Film. 144 full-color pages, written by Dan, designed by Dan, painstakingly put together and laid out chock full of full-color illustrations. There are stories in this book worthy of any Hollywood tell-all about people Dan worked with directly, and not just George Lucas, but also Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, Kirk Douglas, Jack Nicholson, Orson Welles, Barry Geordie, nearly everyone who made a mark on movies over the last 50 years and the titles Dan created for Star Wars, Raging Bull, Close Encounters, The Exorcist, Nightmare on Elm Street, I remember that one, New York, New York, and so many more. This is a must have for a movie fan, a design fan, a history buff. Dan Perry, Hollywood titles designer, a life in film, that's the title. Just go to danperry.com, $50 plus shipping and handling, And if you go to the additional info window at checkout and mention Grey Zone in the comments, Dan will autograph the book for you, normally a $70 value. Book and autograph are yours for $50 plus shipping, a low price to pay for Hollywood history. That's D-A-N-P-E-R-R-I dot com. Now, back into the Grey Zone. Did you grow up wanting to get into the movie business?
0: No, I did not. Uh, only uh, after high school uh, a friend of mine in high school we both studied with the same wonderful design teacher uh, he was working at a visual effects house he was putting together the artwork for titles and a couple of the known title designers at the time would bring their work to the company where he worked. They were called uh, Film Effects and Steve's job was to assemble all this artwork. The designer would bring in, this is what my logo is and I want to do this and that and Steve would interpret all that and create the artwork. So I ran into him one day when I was working for, at the time a prominent tile designer and he was exploiting my creative work and Steve was working for this effects company and we uh, started hanging out together and learned that we lived nearby to each other out in the valley and we both had kids and wives and so, uh, we eventually decided to give up the security of our jobs and throw in together and create a little design studio and pursue title design, which I was already doing, but I was working for another designer right.
1: and wasn't getting credit for it. But that was also a result of your love for type and your love for design. It wasn't yes. necessarily motivated by a love for film.
0: Uh, no, no. In fact, I fell in love with type as a kid and started sign painting. So I would brush letter these beautiful shapes of letters and create signs for supermarkets and uh, bars and restaurants and things like that.
1: You just would knock on doors and say, I'm going to do your signs for you? Yeah, many times
0: I would just go up to the manager of a restaurant and say, "I, I do these what they call show cards, which were a kind of a decorative sign that would be Used to announce maybe there's a pianist that plays in the restaurant on weekends, and this is their name. And so I, I started designing and decorating the words so that it looked more aesthetically pleasing and exciting. And so, so uh,
1: you you probably saw a sign and said, "I like how that looks. I can do that. I want to do that." And that's what inspired you to. Yeah,
0: I would see these uh, show cars that were done by other people and felt that I could do as good or better. So I started bringing my own sensibilities and my own aesthetic viewpoint to the creation of type, uh, but decorating it so it was more elegant. And
1: We're talking awesome. to Dan Perry, designer, and also Hollywood title designer. And sign painter. Sign painter. Yeah. And you worked on some of the marketing too, well outside of the actual theater experience. For film.
0: Yes, uh, that started with The
1: Exorcist. Right. Well, let's uh, jump back. I did did say, I teased just before uh, we talked about your book, that Star Wars is not going to always be part of your life. You you are famous for (laughs) characterizing Star Wars. Um, What is your bluntest opinion of it? It was a stupid
0: space movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I
1: always. Well, you know, um, I don't know if. Lucas would disagree with that in this, that if you've read Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, uh, the remarkable book about the 1970s in Hollywood, Mm -hmm. all those directors who went somewhere knew each other. Some did better than others over time. Lucas, who was just as much about the new wave, he wanted to sort of create this European new wave of film in the United States. They all did. They wanted to make serious films. And then two guys, one named George Lucas, one named Steven Spielberg, and I think Scorsese to a lesser degree, said, you know what, I think I want to make movies that people want to see, that they want to root for, enjoy. Um, That's the formula I think we're going to follow. And they're the two who we still talk about, or the three that we still talk about from those early Hollywood days. And Lucas said, I think for my next film... I'm going to make a kid's movie. His model was Disney. Mm. At the time, Disney was turning out a lot of films. Uh, they were uniquely Disney films. that No other studio was doing anything like them. Fantasy kind of films. And he said, I've noticed that each of them grosses about $16 million, 14 or $16 million. That's what I'm going to do for Star Wars. He even, to this day, I think, sometimes calls Star Wars a children's movie, a kid's movie. Mm. And that was, I think, the ceiling of his ambition. If I can make what Disney makes on a kid's film, I'll be happy. And if you look at it, from that point of view, particularly the first Star Wars film, you realize, I think that is what he was after. He had these sort of mascot kind of characters and these sort of fantastical fantasy kind of characters. He had It had elements of a cowboy movie, a western. It had elements of a Japanese film, certainly like, like The Seven Samurai, and that's sort of samurai films. And he kind of put it all together into a script, a, a lumbering long script that he eventually... To, he took advice from people and shortened down, shortened down. And then it became Star Wars. And I think somewhere along the way, this incredible accident of uh, great effects, the, the effects became possible. The music, which I think is about, in the case of Star Wars, 40% of the film's success, at least. Uh, the amazing title sequence, which has been copied and copied and copied actors that you like all of that together created this blockbuster that I really think surprised even Lucas mm-hmm. and sure uh, you right. were part of that and I think you were you know just bringing your inspiration to it made it what it is today but you were not as impressed with it as I think other people were in 1977 well from my vantage point uh, you can imagine
0: I had to go out an hour drive from where my office in Hollywood was out to ILM and typically wait for him for an hour or two while he watched explosions tests and dailies and so on and had arguments with his people and they were all pulling their hair out and struggling and frustrated and so on so when he finally got to me he was all worn out and angry and upset and he never liked what it showed him so i crawl back to my studio. You know, are you paid for your
1: time or are you only going to be paid for the finished product?
0: I know. Well, I'm paid usually a fee. Right. So whatever it takes to do it. you know, doesn't So it's matter. not hourly.
1: Oh, no. If you have to go do it again, you have to do it again. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. It's always that way, which I don't mind. I, I always give myself completely to the project. Once the fees are settled, it doesn't matter what I'm being paid. It's doing the job.
1: That's what I care about. Doing the work, so uh, and I think that's the secret. That's kind of what I was touching on, and we'll talk about it. That you were somebody who loved, you love what you do. It's not like you chose to go into film because you thought it was going to be a big payday or no, that's right. Or, or if there still, are a lot of prestige. I still treat
0: it that way. Uh, I even mm-hmm. my current client clients. I'm doing four films right now, and I tell them right off the bat that you know once we make a deal, whatever the fee is, you, you're not going to get part of. What I do because you're paying me less, maybe than on another film, you still get everything I have. And once we settle the numbers,
1: then I go away and just do what I've got to do to solve the problems and give you what you need. So it's a happy accident, really. You did your best on Star Wars, and then it's part of something that is is magic. No one, uh, you, people can't imagine Star Wars beginning any differently than the way you began it.
0: No, although. Uh, one of the films in the in the collection of Star Wars films called Rogue One uh, did not use the crawl and I, no, I've never even seen it so I, I can't describe it <laughs> but you accurate. were on but,
1: record about it I've yes read. well
0: when it came out um, the Hollywood reporter called me and asked me what I thought of how they changed the titles for Rogue One differently than I had done on the original which was then later copied by Lucas on the subsequent Star Wars films and there was three or four or five of them by the time they got to Rogue One so there was a history of this style and this look on a title sequence that I had created originally and was duplicated accurately down to the frame for every other Star Wars film but apparently this director I don't even know who it was uh, who was doing Rogue One decided to, just to not do it the way the previous films had been done. So now it comes out, and people are outraged, and so on. That doesn't have the same style of opening. So, uh, the Hollywood reporter, who at the time a prominent Hollywood uh, news magazine, uh, called me to ask me what I thought of that. And I told him they I, were stirring the pot. Don't think it was a good idea. So, out of that, NPR, National Public Radio, calls me and said, we'd like to do an interview with you uh, because we want to know what you think of Rogue One and how it's different. And so uh, I did this interview, which was later all over the country and around that time of the release of Rogue One, and I just told him I thought it was stupid. Uh, you what know, well, didn't make because sense. Because why not? It's, it's part of the identity of the Because hundreds of millions of, of film uh, fans expect that, you know, and they love it, and they go crazy when it first comes on the screen. It's the next segment of the story and they want to relive it the way they had originally.
1: Well, people come up to you. Dan has been, is as active as he's ever been, I think, at least uh, apart from titles. You've been speaking at colleges, you've been traveling world to talk about titles and film. And of course, what, Star Wars comes up more than any other. When people mention to you the first time they saw it. It does.
0: Yeah. Yes, I'm quite amazed. But I'm still amazed how often when someone learns I've Star Wars and they're just aghast initially. And then they immediately, I can see it in their eyes, they go back to that moment when they first saw it. And they want to tell me everything about that experience because it was so important to them. They want to tell me how old they were, what theater it was at, who they were with, their father and mother, and, and that they were just amazed for days and weeks afterward. And, the, the, all of this they have to tell me they're compelled to because now they're looking at the person who created those images that are so significant in their lives to them and I, these are adults these are people that, in the business who are sophisticated and experienced And but when they learn that I'd done the titles they just have to tell me the whole story of how their experience was when they first saw
1: it you were able to take advantage of where Technology had reached at that time in history. It was a lot of hard work, and you had to do a lot of tricks, and you had to force the technology. But true, it, it, you're lucky in that it looked like something no one had seen before. I yes. don't think
0: that was the challenge. Once I got the idea to basically recreate this look from 1940s, which was difficult to do at that time as well, uh, I had to find a way to shoot this crawl and it had to be in perspective and it had to be pulled by this logo that came in on this big musical flourish and
1: all you Did you do that, did you cut your version to John Williams' music or did he score it to your... Well,
0: I can only think that he scored it to what I did because I I was never given any music.
1: How many can say that they were scored by two, John Williams scored your work? (laughs) Well...
0: um, I also worked with him on Close Encounters, Mm -hmm. and it was the same situation. I was begging for music to drive my ideas, and he didn't have it at that point.
1: Wow. Well, I'm going to let you off the hook from the Star Wars. We'll talk about Dan Perry, how he got his start, how he found himself doing what he's doing, and to this pinnacle of your career, which is talking to me. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Let's take a time out to talk about our sponsor, this time for Gray Zone, and it's Dan Perry. We're offering Dan's brand new book, Dan Perry, Hollywood Titles Designer, A Life in Film. 144 full-color pages, written by Dan, designed by Dan, painstakingly put together and laid out, chock full of full-color illustrations. There are stories in this book worthy of any Hollywood tell-all about people Dan worked with directly, and not just George Lucas, but also Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, Kirk Douglas, Jack Nicholson, Orson Welles, Barry Geordie, nearly everyone who made a mark on movies over the last 50 years. And the titles Dan created for Star Wars, Raging Bull, Close Encounters, The Exorcist, Nightmare on Elm Street, I remember that one, New York, New York, and so many more. This is a must have for a movie fan, a design fan, a history buff. Dan Perry, Hollywood titles designer, a life in film, that's the title. Just go to danperry.com, $50 plus shipping and handling. And if you go to the additional info window at checkout and mention gray zone in the comments, Dan will autograph the book for you. Normally a $70 value. Book and autograph are yours for $50 plus shipping. A low price to pay for Hollywood history. That's D-A-N-P-E-R-R-I dot com. Now, back into the gray zone. Dan Perry grew up in the Valley, what we call the Valley here in Los Angeles, which is a series, this giant waffle iron of many, many neighborhoods and cross streets. How did you discover that you loved type? that you loved the process of creating logos and signs and that kind of thing?
0: Well, my mother's an artist. She, for my whole life, has painted. She's now 99 years old, and she still paints with oils on canvas on an easel most every day of her life. She lives right here in the area where I live as well. So there was always art materials and... Painting and creating of images around the house ever since I was a small child. So I would play with those materials. I did a lot of stuff with clay. And in school, I sculpted animals and, and started uh, painting with brushes. And I just, you know, I'd see signs everywhere, words and letters, and I just started duplicating them with a brush. And uh, soon I was painting signs, and I realized that I could make money at it, so I would hustle my work to different small markets and stores and so on. And soon I had this little business. you remember your first sign? The first the business? The very first sign. Uh, I had pictures. I had Polaroid pictures of all the signs I'd done for years, which somehow disappeared. But. There was for many years.
1: You've got it somewhere in that house of yours. I'm I probably sure do, yes, but it didn't get find its way into the Dan's board. house, by the way, is a bit like Aladdin's cave or something. There's You've got so much interesting stuff in there. You just like objects and mannequin heads and antiques. Yes,
0: there, there's and, no logic to it. It's just things that I like that I come across. I like the era of the 30s and the 40s, so I I find things that are beautifully designed. they Wonderfully executed in metals and woods and plastic and so on, and I just admire the the technology, the, the craft, and the beauty of the design. Radios and telephones, and I have some old televisions and lots of pottery and different industrial things and housewares and
1: and artifacts uh, from your career. It's quite amazing up there, uh, and, too, and it's on yes. the top of a hill, so it's and a bit like Hogwarts. I built all the
0: so shelves all the way up to the ceiling of my. Rooms and uh, I just continue to collect it. I, I'm really not a collector, I'm an, an accumulator. And the difference <laughs>
1: But it's is that, with it's taste. Fine.
0: Yes, but. The, not a hoarder. The difference is, is I accumulate more than one copy of something. If I see a nice radio, I'll buy it. And if I come across that radio again, the very same radio, instead of saying, well, I got one of those, I'll look will get something else, I get the second one. Two is better I, than one. Yeah, and so uh, many things I have three or four. That's what or five I remember of. those
1: radios. Yeah. Um, So you started off as a a print guy, as a graphic guy. And then you saw an opportunity, right, to... Tell me the first introduction you had, the first job you had that that opened the door for film titles.
0: Well, the fellow I mentioned earlier who became my partner, Steve Smith, who was a, a colleague of mine in high school. He and I studied with the same teacher in at Birmingham High School in Van Nuys, California. And uh, I ran into Steve years after we graduated. By then, he was married and was working for this effects house, uh, actually assembling and creating the artwork for titles, but he wasn't designing them. He was just the, um, the artist that would prepare the art for the camera, and I learned some about titles that there were people who designed these titles but I would uh, in fact Steve w- had this freelance job he was building these dimensional letters out of cardboard that were used in a TV commercial for a radio station radio station kfwB and Steve was had this job to build these letters and they were going to film them on this sound stage so he had to go off to his uh, military requirements he was a reservist that had one weekend a month that he had to go out to active duty and train and so on so he gave me the job so I built these letters out of Strathmore paper brought it over to this soundstage where they were going to film them and on the walls of the offices of that company were these storyboards of these title sequences that were illustrated by this guy whose name was Don Record like phonograph mm-hmm. record who at the time was a prominent title designer, and this company where they were filming the commercial also did optical effects, so they used to put his titles together. So I learned that there was this guy who did titles. So I took note of his name, later tracked him down, and he went up hiring me to work in his art department, along with his girlfriend, this woman who was an artist as well. And he was doing... um, films for Fox and Paramount and Columbia and so on. So I wound up designing many of these title sequences, and he put his name on them because I was an employee. But the secret is I learned how to put my art and my designs on film because it's a very specific technology. Back then, working in film... So you had to know the limitations of film and how to prepare the art and so on.
1: And the needs, the basic needs, like make sure you've got enough light, make sure you have All the right speed that, that of film. All those things that I not know about. And how to storyboard.
0: That's right. So finally, I knew enough to where I could go off on my own. And at that time, Steve and I were hanging out together. So we decided to give up our jobs and open, open a little studio and start doing titles for
1: the Tele- big leap. You did the big leap there. Yes, uh, and which first is because it it, it's one thing television. to it's one thing to work as a commercial artist for some retail, which is probably going to be good, steady work. <clears> but <throat> uh, launching out into film is a is a chance. You're taking a chance, of
0: course. And at that time, Steve had two kids. I had my kids haven't been born yet, but um, we were risking our reliable income to take a chance on our artistry and. A chance to make a name for ourselves, in, uh, but in, you were
1: also uh, lucky in the geography of your life because you were close to the industry. Well,
0: yeah, I was right here in L.A., where the industry was happening. Yeah, at that time, there was no other capitals for filmmaking; only New York and L.A. Right. And and New York was a f- small fraction of what was happening. Right, right and all LA. that.
1: All I think all the technical expertise was in Los Angeles. Even if they were filming in New York, they That's were probably titling. It oh yeah, they year. always
0: finished everything. Yeah. Yeah, they go off to New York or wherever to film the film, but then come back to L.A. to finish it. Of course, all the services and suppliers were here.
1: So I got to leap forward now. How did you meet Saul Bass? First of all, tell us who Saul Bass is and how did you meet him?
0: Saul Bass it was then and still is the most famous title designer and graphic designer in the business, in not only the film business, but the world of graphic design. and. Um, I was exposed to him, so to speak, by my wonderful art teacher in high school who used to, who had been an agency art director on Madison Avenue in the 50s. She and her husband were art directors on Madison Avenue working on major accounts for major manufacturers and so on.
1: Yeah, he did not only film titles, and, and, but he did Quaker Oats. And oh yeah, he was, he so was, many was more of them famous were familiar as, as a graphic with. designer.
0: He did the logos for United Airlines, for Quick Roads, for Bell Telephone, for Warner Brothers, and so on. And he would dabble in titles. He would do a few a year from um, directors who might ask him to work on their films. And he became famous doing a series of films for Alfred Hitchcock and for Otto Preminger. And it was Preminger who had the power at the time to dictate to mostly Fox, is where he made his films, that he wanted his designer who did his titles to also design the ad campaign. So Saul s- s- sort of launched that notion of the title designer also designing the ad campaign.
1: You're, you're kind of his successor then, because what, what is arguably the most famous title sequence of the 50s, North by Northwest? Probably which is Saul Bass. Which is Saul Bass. Those murders,
0: of a murderer. Those premature films that had such strong graphic identities that Saul created. Uh, he was an expert at boiling down uh, all the images into one image that conveyed the texture and the tone and the emotions of the film. And I studied that and learned how. It's not, it's not something you learn really, but how to feel that, how to uh, consolidate, how to visualize from the multiple images that you see on a film to something that can represent the film graphically. And then bring it to life on the screen and then apply it to posters and ads and all the other parts of marketing.
1: Really, film film titles, this may sound obvious, but film titles follows the rules of good design across the board, which is what I think you and Bass demonstrated. Saul Bass was, was just a great visual guy. He wasn't trying to get into film for film's sake. No. But it just worked because he knew how to make it work.
0: He knew how to put things into motion. Uh, and it was a challenge to him at first because he wasn't a filmmaker, had, didn't want to be a filmmaker. But along the way, he learned how to apply his designs to the film medium, which gives you the ability to move things where two dimensions, you know, it's all stationary. And somewhere along the way, by the time I was in high school and started driving my own car, I somehow learned—and this sounds crazy—but I learned that Saul Bass is right there in L.A. That he had his offices on Sunset Boulevard, right in the heart of Hollywood.
1: Again, you were lucky in your geography. Yes. That so much of success I was in the is same, geography.
0: Same town that he was in, so I drove over there one day with my portfolio of my high school artwork under my arm. And I just went in there, you know figuring well, yeah, he'd be happy to see me. you know I'm, do you have an appointment? No, well, have a seat, you know and perhaps he'll he'll have a moment to see you. so I went in three, four times. I became friendly with the secretaries and everything. Finally, Saul came walking by one day, and I just jumped up and approached him and introduced myself, and he very graciously invited me into his office oh. and looked through my whole portfolio very calmly and patiently and reviewed it and commented on it and critiqued it. Uh, he even noticed the back of the of each piece sometimes had messy tape and so on and uh, cuts and things and he said, you know, you shouldn't do this. this. The back should look good too because it's being seen. Just like things that are off camera when they're filming, you know, the, the actor sees those things that, might not be seen by the camera and it affects the emotions of the person who's viewing it. So he was guiding me and already teaching me and helping me with my career. So after seeing all my work, he took me down the hall to his assistant's office, Art, Art Goodman, who used to do his animation work, and they consulted with each other and then asked me to come back regularly, that he wanted to keep track of me. And uh, of course, the ultimate Notion was that I would work for him. Uh, That's what I decided I wanted to do was to work for him. So I would come in every month or two with new work and show him, and he'd advise me and recommend me on, and, and say, "Well, you're just not ready yet. You know, just keep at it." So I went into the Navy after that, and for two years I worked as a journalist and did a lot of graphic design. And almost the day I was released from the Navy, I went to Saul's office, hoping to interview with him. At the time, he had just designed the Bell Telephone logo, and he was now applying it to the hundreds of applications on the trucks and the hats and the sh- shirts and all the uh,
1: collateral material. Which is the logo he, that I don't know if they still use it or if there even I, is a Bell well, Telephone, yeah. but it's, yeah, it's, it's the outline of the bell, right? right? Almost like a, you know. That's right. Liberty Bell, like, or something like that, that shape, the right. bell shape. That's right. With this outline, very simple, but, but very unforgettable. Very bassish. Unforgettable.
0: Yeah. yeah. So he was hiring a couple of designers to do just the applications for the Bell Telephone logo. And at that moment, he offered me a job. And something went off in my head, something probably ego-driven, where I thought to myself, if There's Saul no Vance room for ego in me, Hollywood. Uh, no, 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 nobody yeah, has an ego, it's no. just, just me. So I, I thought, if Saul Vance wants me, I must be good enough. So I turned uh, down the job and I opened my own little studio my little one-man studio.
1: That's not untrue, though, is it? If Saul Bass does want you, then you, you—it's a bit like graduating, right? In a way, yes. Passed. So, of course you, and have you have were have young, and know, you know, I like to design your work, Mister
0: Businessman, and Saul Bass was my mentor, you know, and so then he'd want to hire me. But you don't say that, so there's no way that, in a practical world, that makes any difference except to you. Mm-hmm. So it gave me the confidence to go out on my own and uh, offer my work to
1: whoever wanted it. And then a few years later, I suppose, it was somebody said, This guy, George Lucas, needs some help over here. Or did you have an agent? Did an agent find you those jobs? Never had an agent, no. So you just knocked on doors like you did as a kid?
0: Yep. And then once I did The Exorcist, which was one of the first big blockbusters. That's
1: right. So that was your first Exorcist?
0: Yes. I did the original Exorcist, and then two years later, I did the sequel Exorcist to The Heretic.
1: The repossession. <laughs> right. One more quick timeout. We're offering Dan's brand new book, Dan Perry, Hollywood Titles Designer, A Life in Film. 144 full-color pages, hardcover, written by Dan, designed by Dan, painstakingly put together and laid out, chock full of full-color illustrations. There's even a cool movie-film effect inside. There are stories in this book worthy of any Hollywood tell-all about people Dan worked with directly and not just George Lucas. We barely scratched the surface of Dan's lengthy resume in this hour, and there's so much more to see and know about the titles Dan created for movies like The Aviator, Nashville, Bull Durham, an officer and a gentleman the color of money movies that we grew up with and you won't have to rely on memory alone Dan has included QR codes with nearly every chapter so you can see the titles and relive them again on your iPhone this is a must-have for a movie fan a design fan and a history buff Dan Perry Hollywood titles designer a life in film just go to danperry.com $50 Fifty dollars plus shipping and handling, and if you go to the additional info window at checkout and mention Gray Zone in the comments, Dan will autograph the book for you. Normally a seventy-dollar value, book and autograph are yours for just fifty dollars plus shipping, and you'll own a piece of Hollywood history. That's d a n p e r r i dot You actually not only did the titles for The Exorcist, you were doing the marketing too, the right. actual design
0: and the. Sequel as well.
1: Was that? What about that whole idea with the the man in the top in the hat and the top coat under the lamp?
0: Right. Uh, with the, was that your idea coming from? Yeah, it was, it was one of the f- frames I pulled from the film. I still have a, the presentation I made to Warner Brothers, which will be part of my exhibition at the New York Museum. That's going to be exhibiting my work in October. Um, it was one of the images that I chose to present as being the key art for the campaign and that's Warner
1: Brothers chose. So that, that's also iconic. That <clears> still <throat> shows up in my Instagram feed for iconic moments in film. I know,
0: I know. It's amazing.
1: And you started off with the Exorcist, it led one thing led to another. But it wasn't just George Lucas you've worked with. How did you get connected with Steven Spielberg? Specifically Uh, on Close Encounters. Yes,
0: that came out of working with Scorsese on Taxi Driver. The producers of Taxi Driver was Michael and Julia Phillips, who at the time were a married couple, and they came off of having done The Sting, which won Best Picture the year before. So they had their choice of projects, and they chose Taxi Driver. Then their next film was Close Encounters. 74 was Taxi Driver, 76 was both uh, the release date for t- uh, Star Wars and uh, then the next... 77 year was,
1: was Star Wars, but you worked on it in 76. Yeah. Right.
0: So 77 was the release of Star Wars mm-hmm. and Close Encounters. And I remember that year, of the five Best Picture nominees, I had done three of those films, wow. three of the five.
1: <laughs> Taxi Driver, the film written by Paul Schrader. Yes. Right, directed by... Scorsese, about loneliness, about isolation, about a taxi driver who falls in love with uh, the Jodie Foster character uh, and decides to impress her. Tell me a little bit about the idea you had for actually doing the titles for that.
0: Well, uh, I, I viewed about 200,000 feet of second unit footage that was shot by the production designer on the film, David Snyder, and uh, out of that, it was all at night,
1: yeah, shots of the car, shots of the windshield Right, shots of the of the city, of
0: the streets The uh, steam coming up from the manhole covers And all that darkness and bleakness And horror, horrific um, feelings that ha- happened late at night in New York viewed all that with Marsha Lucas. Marsha was one of the editors on the film. And at George's the time, wife. George's,
1: George but she actually edited Yeah, a Taxi Driver as well. Yeah, she was one of yeah. the editors
0: of the film, but she also edited my sequence. We worked together viewing all this footage and selecting things and ordering them and so on. And out of that, since it was all at night, I wanted to capture that black, that scary, dark place where this character lived. And, in order to copy it and put it on film, I wanted to make sure that it stayed as black and dense and dark and deep as it looked in real life. So I chose to, because of my knowledge of working with optical effects and different film stocks and so on, I knew that if I copied those backgrounds from uh the original negative to an inner positive which was a stock that Eastman Kodak had developed just to copy film and when you copy you could then make a dissolve or a freeze frame or double frame it and make it slower, whatever so uh, the no- notion and the intention was to copy it so it looked as good as the original but I wanted it to look blacker and more saturated and, and scarier than reality So I chose to copy from a color print. So I shot a positive color print right onto Duke Negative, which gave me those wonderful saturated colors and those black blacks. So that gave me the the foundation for the sequence, the the
1: emotions that were
0: coming out of that were that of the character and the city and the horrific place
1: that the story took place. And then the actual words, Taxi Driver. And the Taxi Driver
0: came out of... I wanted to use the authentic type style that is used all over the city on the signs up on the top of the corners of the city. I went to the traffic department and I asked them what they used for all the type of all the signs. So they gave me the name of that font. I went to my typesetters and he had it available. But then I had it all set very tight and condensed so it felt just
1: like the real signs. See, kids, you got to do your homework. Yeah. Now, there's another very, very famous episode in the production of Taxi Driver, which is, famously, that the sequence at the end was considered too bloody. That's right. And it would have affected the rating. Yes. Uh, and it, the story goes <clears throat> that the director went into with the post-production folks and the color... Timer and said, we're going to lighten the shade of red to make it less shocking. That is true, however, it didn't actually happen, it wasn't actually in the director's hands, it was in yours, wasn't it? Yes.
0: Uh, the day came that every director will bring their film to the MPAA, the Motion Picture Association of America, to rate the film, right? And then, I don't know about now, but ratings were really important to a film. Uh, if you got an R instead of a PG, you narrow down your audience a lot. Uh, people old, younger than 18 or 17 couldn't see it legally. So uh, the producers, Michael and Julia Phillips, had a, a contract with Columbia to deliver an R-rated film. So now they, they comes that Scorsese himself, as the director, brings the film the MPAA and he shows it to them. So the result of that was the MP said, we're going to give this film an X because of all the violence and the blood at the end of the film. The whole last reel was just full of blood and splashing and so on. So uh, Marty comes back to the cutting room and I was there that day and so was Michael and Julia. And Marty said, they told me if I just toned it down, he'd give it us an R. And they had to have an R. So... He then immediately talk, started talking with his editor, saying, well, you know, if we shorten this scene there, we cut out where his finger explodes, whatever. They were thinking of ways to minimize the blood in order to get an R. So I said, Marty, what if we just toned it down? Like they said. Literally. Literally. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, what if we desaturate the color so that the red is not so... Red and bloody it becomes more brownish or grayish, so he liked the idea and said, "Yeah, go ahead and."
1: So that was it. something you supervised.
0: Yes, so I went then to the to the negative cutters, got the negative, which was that that I'm already cut. You know, the whole reel was cut, and they were making prints. So I said, uh, "I'd like to take this and make some elements from it." So I made a it was called a Pan Fine Grain, a black and white master of that whole reel. And then a color IP of the reel as well, They're positive. And I then started testing combinations, percentages of black and white and color until I got a balance where it, the color was still prominent, but the red part, the red layer of the three layers of emulsion on film was minimized.
1: So and without that was your idea. It was my idea. And right. it was something um, you supervised. Yes. Personally. And so you're you're well beyond the realm of just titles here.
0: Yes. No. I be, I've become at that point I become a an optical uh, consultant uh, designer, um, and I would do many films, design montages, and consult on um, transitions, and design things that uh, help the story be clearer and all kinds of things that uh, were special to what I did in addition to titles.
1: Well, as they say, the rest is history because, or film history, because from there you went on to Close Encounters with Steven Spielberg. Did you work with him on anything else besides Close Encounters?
0: Uh, his next film was 1941. Oh, 41, of course. I designed the uh, initial poster for the film and then he went off and shot the film and when he came back he decided to just choose a type style, Right. Well, that
1: became the trend, didn't it? Is that often it wasn't... It was sort of simple text at the beginning of a film or uh, titles at the end of a film, which is kind of maybe for another conversation. That started happening as well, yes. uh, That got Lucas in trouble. He actually got in trouble with the Producers Guild, I think, because Mm. he was doing that with the titles. He wanted to do it with the titles and he did it anyway. He did it on Star Wars, too. Yeah, All the titles at the end. Well, Dan Perry designer. Hollywood titles designer but a whole lot more than that and there's so much more we could talk about. Dan, thank you so much. I will ask you one more question. Uh, Were you actually doing Coke with Jack Nicholson? I hear there's a story that involves.
0: (laughs) Well, the day that I met him and presented ideas to him on the sequel to Chinatown. um, The Two Jakes. The Two Jakes, thank you. Uh, Jack was there with his buddy and they would step out of the room every few minutes and come back with dust on their nose and so on so they would go off and do coke
1: they just leave and, you in the room
0: yeah well I, me and Bert Schneider the producer who brought me in to meet Jack and the that's Burton the Lace. Bert Schneider
1: yeah who, who was a big producer in the 70s that's right Days of Heaven and many other films mm-hmm. um, The Monkeys is well, that The, the yeah, Monkeys, well, Bert Schneider and um, yeah. so many other Bert films and,
0: Bert and Harold Schneider the two brothers were the powerhouse producing team Five Easy Pieces yes all, yeah. all of Riefelson's films at that time yes uh, I remember how I, I I described this idea and then I handed him the cigarette lighter which I still have a very Deco classic lighter which I think might even appear in the book and um, he looked at it and then he handed it back to me and he said the Deco is in the movie <laughs> <laughs> suggesting that we don't need the Deco in the titles You know,
1: <laughs> it's not, it was his nice kiss off yeah, that's you know? right yeah But you've got so many stories. You've got uh, a Robert Evans story. You've got uh, a Bob Dylan story. Yes. You mentioned that he had a handshake like a fish. Uh, Yes. But he gave you a great story to tell. Yes, he did. Yeah. Dan Perry, check out danperry.com. And the title is Hollywood Titles Designer. And it is a well-designed book, Dan, if I may say so. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Mine as well. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: And also, by the way, Dan, you are a designer extraordinaire, and I'm going to put you on the spot here and say I need a logo for gray Zone.
0: It happens that I know
1: someone. <laughs> so, you'll help arrange, arrange that for me. Yes. And that's it. That's a wrap. And this is uh, the post-game show. <laughs> a ball on a strike. Dan Perry, half point, turned down, didn't believe in it at all we calculated how much Star Wars made the first year globally, and it was something like $775 million, which is well over a billion today. And that a half point that Dan was offered would have been something like $3.8 million the first year. Now, of course, they snatched that right back, but still, I'm, try- I'm trying to get my head around that, uh, coming so close. Anyway, amazing. Also, I would encourage you to check out the Union Pacific title. You can see it on YouTube and other places, that uh, film from 1939 which inspired the Star Wars crawl and once you see it, you see those words sliding up the railroad track, you will not look at the Star Wars crawl the same way again. Check out Dan's website, again I encourage you to do that. That's danperry.com, that's P-E-R-R-I.com. And use promo code GRAYZONE for that special offer, book and autograph. One more thing. Dan is going to be at the Museum of the Moving Image. All of his work, a lot of the artifacts and things that he used to make those titles on display starting October 5th in New York City at the Museum of the Moving Image. So just check out their website for that. I am standing next to above, I suppose, the Hollywood Walk of Fame and I'm looking down on some stars, not, not the human being stars. They don't come out here too often, but I'm looking at actual stars, and my next guest I think deserves one of those, and I hear they're working on it. His name is Floyd Norman. He is one of the more famous animators, maybe one of the more famous animators ever to live now, uh, in films and TV shows. He worked for the big man himself, Walt Disney, while Walt was still alive, and Floyd himself is now 87 years old, but you'd never guess, and because of that he has stories, maybe, as many stories, if not more, than Dan Perry has to tell. He's going to be my next guest on The Grey Zone. Thanks everybody, and wherever you linked to Grey Zone, leave a comment and let us know what you think. All right, that's a wrap. My name is Gray, and this was Grey Zone. Grey Zone.